Welcome to episode 10, The Vikings Are Here. The Vikings are here. This is so exciting. Well, that's not what a lot of the people said after they said the Vikings are here. No, it was more, oh my god, the Vikings are here, run, hide. But yeah, so welcome to the next and possibly one of the most important steps in our podcast, which is the Vikings. Yeah, one of the more well-known, perhaps the most well-known era of Swedish and Scandinavian history. Yes, but... Before we get into that, we released our first special episode last week. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you've all had a listen and had a listen to something a little bit different, something more modern. And on that, we've since spoken to my dad, who served for 12 years on Royal Navy submarines, and he said he most definitely didn't get to keep his dog tags. So probably we're pushing our luck a bit if we're asking for people to send in pictures yeah. of their own dog tags but it seems like at least in britain you didn't keep your dog tags after you finished your military service which makes sense true uh, before we get all uh, all vikingy should we do our swedish race absolutely yeah. and it's possibly my favorite one because i liked turi utor from the first episode mm-hmm. But that's more of a, oh, that's an interesting, I like the interestingness of it. Whereas this one is just really fun, and it's ingen ku på isen. So in English, it means no cow on the ice, which is quite a funny, if you're all now picturing a cow on ice, like Bambi, kind of, that's, that's a funny image. Yeah, but like last time, it's also a shortening of a much longer phrase. Yeah, so the whole phrase is... Det är ingen kyo på isen så länge rumpan är i land. Which would mean, it's not a cow on the ice as long as the butt is on land. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. No, so the meaning of this phrase is kind of, it's no problem or don't worry, don't panic. So it's not a problem, the cow is on the ice as long as it has the butt on land. I think that is the meaning of the phrase, if I am to analyse it. Yeah, but in colloquialism it means it's not a problem. Yeah, so you just say, oh, they've eaten and I'll fix that. That's uh, not a cow on the ice. Good. Yeah, you are, you like it so much that you've come up with an emoji sequence that illustrates this. It's quite easy. You just put the cross emoji. There's an emoji pointing uh, with like an arrow which says on and then ice cube. So no And then cow. cow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so cross emoji, cow emoji, on emoji, and ice cube emoji. So quite often, this is a bit of an insight into our lives, quite often if I text Chris something like, oh, I need to stay late in the office, I will get that emoji sequence as a reply when you say, it's not a problem, I just get that emoji sequence back. Yeah, but even that is too long, so I just like to say no cow. <laughs> you you have taken it upon yourself to make an already abbreviated phrase even more abbreviated. Yeah, uh, but hey-ho, I don't think it's catching on. <laughs> no, but uh, but you like it, and, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, no cow. No cow. Now, should we move on from cows on the ice to Vikings? Not necessarily on ice, but sometimes on ice. Yeah. Like we said, we've arrived at a famous point in Swedish and perhaps in general Scandinavian history. Yeah, and it's a really exciting one. This is perhaps a lot of people will think when they think of Sweden, Swedish history or Scandinavian history. Maybe a lot of listeners might even start at this point because they don't care about the Iron Age and the Stone Age and all the fun things that we looked at before, which is understandable when you do have this really big epoch of history, the Viking Age, to look forward to. And we'll come to perhaps why this period is so famous later. But first, uh, we should just orientate ourselves and establish where we are and who we're talking about. So most of this episode will be a brief introduction into Viking life, uh, what the Vikings were doing and who they were. And then we start going through it chronologically next time. First things first, where are we talking about now? Where are we? So as always, we're in Sweden, as you might expect, but we're also including general events from modern day Denmark and Norway. 
not all Vikings were Swedish. In fact, some of the more famous ones are not Swedish. Yeah. So we'll have to try and separate them out, but we will touch upon bits that were more Danish and Norwegian than Swedish, but not in a real forensic mm. level. And that will include figures that weren't Swedish, like Harold Hardrada or Harold Bluetooth. They'll crop up every now and then in a narrative, but we're not going to do a biography on them or anything like that because they weren't Swedish. No, they were uh, Norwegian and Danish, respectively. So we'll leave that depth stuff on those for a History of Denmark or History of Norway podcast or even the many Viking Age podcasts that exist. So... At times, it is difficult to distinguish between the different areas and nation states hadn't developed to what they are today. So the lines are more blurred. We do see the birth of the proper Danish and Norwegian kingdoms at this point in history. And Sweden is certainly well on its way to forming when we get to the end of the Viking era, but uh, it took longer for Sweden to form as a unified kingdom. The Danes and Norwegians got there way before us. The main point is that in order to draw conclusions of what life was like during the Viking Age, Historians often have to combine evidence of what they've found from across different territories. Because much like Scandinavia today, the Viking Age was interconnected with culture, language, economy, work-life balance and all of that stuff. So it was the same in many ways as it is to this very day. Although they probably fought each other a lot more. Yeah, the different Scandinavian areas. It was a much more violent time. Yeah, now the fighting is on the ice hockey matches. But now for when, we're talking about roughly 800 CE to 1100 CE, although we'll start about 10, 15 years before that, uh, because this is sort of the easy shorthand method, which it could also be said as from the Lindisfarne raid till the Battle of Stamford Bridge. But of course, this is an Anglo-centric version of history. This is because a lot of the scholarship is in English and the scholars are English. They picked these dates in English history rather than Scandinavian history to orientate yourself. So in general, 800 to 1100 without the fancy battles and names, that's probably a little bit more accurate. Yeah, it is always difficult to define periods in history because... Obviously, they weren't seen as such at the time. It's something that we've created a lot later. It's not like they woke up one day and went, Ah, Ingeborg, it's now the Viking era. And then 200 years later, waking up one day and saying, It's not the Viking era anymore. Yeah, and like you were saying with it being Anglo-centric, depends slightly on where you are when you study history. In Scandinavia... The Viking era is definitely seen as its own period. When we were in school, that was its own section of history class, like the Middle Ages or the Renaissance. But if you're in other places, it's just seen as a part of European Iron Age. Yeah, I don't imagine the French call it the Viking Age, even though, as we'll see, there was absolutely a lot of interaction between the general area of modern-day France and the Vikings. I don't think they call it the Viking Age. If we have any French listeners, uh, get in touch. Le era de viking. S'il vous plaît. <laughs> no. Yeah. Before I do any more of my horrendous French, uh, we have a great quote that sums up the sort of background of the Viking era for you. And perhaps just as importantly, it also talks about how academics approach the subject area of the Viking Age. And it's a familiar voice to us. It's Jerry from the Presidency's podcast. So take it away, Jerry. The Viking Age, the last of the Iron Age subperiods, holds a special place in the histories of all the Scandinavian countries. It was a time of affluence, energy, adventure, and achievements at home, and across a world of surprisingly great breadth. It was also one of the moments in the past when Scandinavians stood out among their European neighbors when what they did had impacts beyond their borders. Such times are relatively rare in any of the Nordic countries' histories. As a result, the Viking Age tends to be seen through highly nationalistic prisms that make bias, exaggeration, and romanticizing particularly common. It is therefore a time that must be approached with care. Remember, too, 
This is still prehistory. Archaeological sources remain central, and all the problems of interpretation continue to plague any student of the period. Thank you, Jerry, very much. We were on the Amazing Presidencies podcast that Jerry hosts a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Jerry's podcast is all about the American presidents, and he goes through each president in chronological order, analyzing them and their presidencies. He's really great at looking at all the primary sources and engaging with letters and diary entries and so on. And that was why we were asked to go on his podcast. We managed to get in character and read out (laughs) quotes from two notable American politicians at the time. Also was Wilson Kerry Nicholas, and I got to be President Jefferson, so that was really fun. Yeah, and now thank you, Jerry, for returning the favour and reading out that quote. After you've finished listening to this, check out Presidency's podcast wherever you find your podcasts, and... You can follow Jerry on at Precedencies89 on Twitter. And we'll put a link to that and his website on the episode description so you can just scroll down and have a click. Yeah, and the quote that Jerry was reading out is from a book called The History of Sweden by Byron J. Nordstrom. Yes, so that was a really good quote. And thank you, Jerry, for reading it out. So, with all of that in mind, what actually was a Viking, or who was a Viking? This is where, depending on how far down the rabbit hole we go, (laughs) it can get a bit confusing. The word Viking has become synonymous with a raiding or trading Northman, as Stefan Brink calls them. But this wasn't really a common word at the time. If you were in France, then you would call them Northmen or Danes, because a lot of them were Danish. In England, they were also called Danes or Pagans as a general catch-all term. And in Ireland, where they absolutely got to as well, they would call them foreigners or they would call the Norwegians Fingal, which meant white foreigners, and the Danes Dubgal, which meant black foreigners. So I don't know why they got those two names. When venturing east, much more relevant to us, the Swedish Vikings would be called Rus or Vorai or Varangians in modern day terms, much more, much, much, much more on this later on, both today and in the podcast in general, because this is really interesting and also rabbit hole level kind of stuff. Yeah, when you heard the word Varangian, maybe the ears pricked up on some of you who are interested in later Roman and Byzantine history, because we get something called the Varangian Guard. But like I said, a lot more on that later. Uh, What about the word Viking? So Viking comes about in the 9th century in England. There are many theories of the origin which we could spend a whole episode on, but we won't. So in 8th century English, there's a word Viking, Viking with a C basically, so maybe a hard C like in Italian. But it isn't clear if this means the same thing at all. Nobody's 100% sure. The first thing that comes about when you're looking at the word Viking is that there are two forms of the word in Old Scandinavian. There's the word Vikinger, Viking with an R on the end, which was the male form. That was the word for the actual person, translated as sea warrior. Then you have the female version of the word Viking, which was Viking. And that was the word for a military expedition over sea. So more like what Vikings were doing. Um, These differences are found on runestones and also in the very proliferous Anglo-Saxon chronicle of the time. Okay, so that's interesting. That would imply that Swedes who stayed as home as farmers and traders and blacksmiths and everything else, they wouldn't be called a Viking then, as they were neither sea warriors nor travelled out on sea adventures. It's something I've always wondered about, and I didn't really have an answer to before, whether Viking was something you self-identified as, or something other people identified you as. Yeah. So what we do know is that no one really identified a Swede yet at this point. Some people might have started to identify as Danes or Norwegians since those areas were starting to shape into nations at the time, but Swedes? Not really. 
And now some of them might not even be Vikings. Nope. <laughs> so that's definitely true. And especially about the Danes, they were, they were definitely a people mm. at this point with lots of the sources saying, oh, the Danes and the king mm. of the Danes. And that was a specific geographical area. Yeah. And there's quite a number of rune stones that talk about Vikings in general, not necessarily Swedes, but a lot of them actually are in Sweden. Mm. There's one on Gotland, which tells us that a guy called Helga had gone westwards with Vikings. Mm-hmm. So that's... Fun for Helga. Yeah. There's one from Vestergötland, which says a man called Tuli was killed in Viking, as in on a Viking expedition. Mm. Where the word came from originally, we have lots of different possible explanations, ranging from the fact that the bay leading towards Oslo was called Viken, mm-hmm. or that Vik comes from the Baltic word for Vich, or V-I-C, for trading place or harbour, which in itself was the Germanicized version of the Latin Vicus, which was a trading sort of area. Some people claim that it could come from the word for bay or inlet, Vik, which was where they got the name for the bay leading to Oslo, as this would have been a place where some Vikings would have set off from. And finally, there's the potential that it could have come from the Old Norse word vikja, which meant to move, travel or walk, and that the Vikings were people who did this to leave home and do something else. Yeah, it is a bit of a rabbit hole, right? Yeah, it's all a bit complicated. And overall, the origin seems to be based on the violent nature of people who ended up traveling and pillaging and potentially about where they actually came from in terms of their journeys began or ended. So they would have potentially even had a different name if they left to go somewhere on a boat but were never intending to be violent and just went to trade things because they weren't warriors and they weren't going on military expeditions. Yeah, it seems that not everyone in the Viking era was a Viking. And even if you were a Viking, you weren't a Viking all of the time. Being a Viking seems to have been a bit like a cross between a job, a hobby and an identity. Like something you did for a bit. But most Vikings were also farmers, craftsmen, traders, chieftains, lots of other things. And we've just come to see the whole period as the Vikings. That kind of gave the period its name. I think for consistency, we should stick to that terminology. But it's worth keeping in mind that Vikings did lots of things. Yeah, something that's literally just come up to my head now. I think it could be a little bit like modern day sportsmen or footballers in the sense that they play football once a week, but they are identified in the media always as a footballer, Lionel Messi, did this, blah, 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 when actually they possibly spend more time doing charity work with their family, owning their own businesses and doing adverts and commercials on TV than they actually do playing football. But that is always, they're always identified in the media and by people as footballer Lionel Messi. I guess to a certain extent that's true of all of us. We're all several different things. Our our identity is is layered. We are our job titles. We are our family uh, relations, etc., etc. Yeah, so I think that's a sensible way of looking at the Vikings too. Yeah. Now we've cleared up what that term Viking meant and what they were, we can perhaps start talking a bit about what they did and how they did it. As we've seen in many, perhaps most respects, the Vikings are so famous because they went elsewhere to be violent and that was the integral part of their identity in respect of the name itself and to the people they went to meet. In this period, Scandinavians really did make a mark elsewhere in Britain, continental Europe and the East. You can be as important as you like in your own hometown or your own home general political entity, which the Swedes had obviously been for a long time. But now they start hell-raising elsewhere, they get on the radar of the world, so to speak. I think that's why the Viking era, at least partly, has become so famous, is that we kind of left our own corner of the world and went elsewhere and and got noticed. And get noticed in very violent and bloody ways. 
But of course, they have one crucial thing that made it possible for them to leave Scandinavia in the first place and really become a thing on the world stage, and that was their ships. The famous Viking longboats that I'm sure you can picture in your head and have seen in various forms of media. Exactly. A lot of research is going into the origins of the Viking Age at the moment. Consensus uh, seems to be shifting away from reasons such as Scandinavia was overpopulated and had bad harvests, and that's why they made their boats better and went elsewhere. Previous historians have often presented that as a as a theory. To nowadays, more historians or researchers are saying that. The fact that new boats with sails enabled faster, safer, and more profitable travel. Uh, So the conditions were there to go, rather than conditions forcing them to leave. And you see that sort of push-pull factors in modern-day political science when you're talking about immigration and refugees and all of that stuff. So again, it's probably a bit of everything wrapped into one, but you definitely wouldn't have been able to get anywhere without the ships. Yeah, these boats, so the famous Viking longboats, they were long and narrow and shallow. The fact that they were shallow were very important for our future Swedes in the Viking Age who are going to be travelling down a lot of rivers in Russia and, and Eastern Europe. Some of the Viking ships could even be dragged or sometimes even carried between rivers. You could lift them up and carry them for a bit because they were so narrow and shallow. If you're ever in Oslo, you should definitely head to the Viking Ship Museum because there you can see some of the world's best preserved ships from this time. And if you go there, you can repeat the pun that my mother said when we were there when she was looking at the Viking ship and the people pretending to row it, and she said, that ship is awesome, <laughs> looking at the oars. Oh, um, that is a, that, that's a good pun. Well done. Well, it's a terrible pun, but that's the best kind of pun. Anyway, this type of ship helped them become better, faster, and more efficient. And, and that was the main objective. First in trading, and then in fighting, and eventually in settling lands like England and Iceland. As we reach the 10th century, we see specialised cargo vessels in Scandinavian waters too. So shall we look at the first reason for them travelling, the trading, in a bit more detail? Yes, absolutely. I think we're generally familiar with the idea of Vikings traveling abroad to plunder, but the trading is something that's been focused on in the last generation or so of academics. And instead of the burning, raping, pillaging and stealing, which is absolutely what they did, we have what Stefan Brink calls the peaceful, industrious trading Vikings. And the Viking Age Scandinavians absolutely spent time on both of these sides of the coin. Yeah, the trading was important, and especially now, coming up to the Viking Age, it was made a lot easier by the fact that trading hubs like York and Ipswich in England had been established, and Frisian coins were in abundance in this system. And this all makes it more profitable and possible for people like the Vikings to get involved in the trading. We have this absolutely perfect quote about the interaction of trade and war in the Viking mindset, and that is, The Viking Age is renowned as an era when trade and war went happily together, raids being, so to speak, a continuation of trade by other means. I absolutely love this quote, reference to Klaus Witz by Søren Michael Sinbeck. Klaus Witz being the don of political military theory. Um, his book on war being a thing I studied during my master's and wrote an essay about. Yeah, Chris and I both have a a smile on our face because we both studied international relations and conflict studies and so on. So uh, we've spent many uh, afternoons in different university libraries poring over Clausewitz, no doubt. Yeah, the this quote being a continuation of trade by other means is play on his quote war being politics by other means. Yeah, so that applied to uh, the Viking Age and its image of trade and exchange. It was perhaps a bit of a romantic 
issue in the study of the era, should we say. It has led to some people looking at it as uh, the origins of capitalism and other such things, which add to the fame of the Vikings, uh, showing them as like entrepreneurs, quite angry entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I'm, not, not really, I'm not really comfortable with the term entrepreneur for someone who then got angry and beat you up if you didn't buy their stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's a it's a fraught uh, field when we start to apply these modern terms to uh, history. Yeah, I think almost every era has been called the home or the start of capitalism in the sense. Oh, was it the Greeks or was it the Romans? But the most important thing we're talking about in terms of the Vikings is the fact that their trade was, of course, part of this northern European network. Handily, this kicks off right at the start of the period we're talking about, at the end of the eighth century as things begin to start changing for good. Trading hubs in the east start to crop up too. There's one called Staraya Ladoga in northwest Russia, for example. Our Swedes are heading east to search for tradable goods, those like more furs and probably, as ever, slaves. Swedish traders and their Viking companions settled in the east, becoming famous for their warlike ways and their trade there too. They started to become known to others as the Rus, or the Rus, the very beginnings of Russia, or Russia, as we see it today. We have a whole episode planned on this coming up, or parts of many episodes, because this is really important, at least as we look at the Swedish expansion into the East. So don't get worried that we're only talking about it for a few sentences here. We're mm. absolutely returning to the Swedes in the East. Definitely, because that's really where Swedish Vikings spent a lot of time and effort. And as a result, we also started to see uh, silver Arabic coins, the Durhams, uh, which appear in Russia and then in Scandinavia itself. We also see a return of those lovely glass beads that were such a big deal in trading in the Bronze Age. Uh, in fact, so many appear that the local production of beads in trading towns like Elhus in Sweden and Herdeby in Denmark stop completely as they're just importing them. Yeah, all, all this stuff coming in from the eastern Swedes who are bringing them back home. Yeah, Elhus, bit of a side note, as you may know, continues to this day to be a very productive place. It is uh, the home of Absolute Vodka, the vodka brand. Yeah, which I know is now an absolutely huge Swedish export around yeah, the world. So Definitely in America. But as fun as it would be to talk about vodka for a long time... Um, we'll get to it. Don't we'll worry. get to it, yeah. But when we get nearer the end of the Viking Age, these trading centres, some of them falling out of favour as we go and disappearing completely, the ones that remain start to become the urban foundations of what would become cities. Mm -hmm. So you have Lund in the area of eastern Denmark, which is now Sweden, a lot of the area we're talking a lot about in this podcast. That's a really good example of this change. Yeah, uh, Lund, birthplace of many great people. Like you. Yes. Yeah. In the late 900s, uh, we also see an increasing change in which fish is becoming even more popular. The fun fact, they're trading more fish. And now we get into the meat of the subject. Oh, you snuck that in without me realising. Ah, there are a number of ways of looking at the overall picture of trade routes in the Viking Age. A lot of people used to say that there would have been a limited number of trading stations uh, positioned deliberately along the long trade link from the Abbasid Caliphate in the east to the Carolinian Empire in the west or in modern-day France. People would then travel from all over to reach those big trading places and go home with their goods. Nowadays, historians are more thinking along the lines that these big hubs were like central places in their own web with smaller local sites scattered around the big hubs. I spent a lot of reading about all this trade theory and things. And again, we'll come back to it in a proper episode or half an episode later on. But it seems like now that a lot of people are looking into the fact that the long distance trade took place in bulk along routes with specific localities where these large cargoes were unloaded or loaded. And this is something that 
Sir Michael Sinbeck has spent a lot of time on. So a lot of this is from what I've been reading from him. And archaeology also now has a much better picture of these smaller sites that were not really focused on before. And we can see that there were indeed some sites that are much bigger than the smaller trading sites around them. But it wasn't true that these big sites monopolized all the trade and that was the reason they became so big. But it was the fact that the larger sites were the focus for the long distance trade and took the goods from the east, say, if, if you're in southern Sweden, you'd import loads of furs from the east, from the eastern Vikings, and then you would spread them out yourselves into the local areas rather than the guy going from the east all the, to all the little individual places on his way. So in effect, these big hubs were sort of like the import-export marketplaces, whereas the trade the local people would have been interested in still took place in their local trading markets nearby. Yeah, that makes sense. And the big hubs, or nodal points, as Sinbeck calls them, tended to be situated in places where the land itself forced a break in the trade, as we mentioned a lot uh, up until now, the weather was still a very important factor at this time for a number of reasons, and it certainly affected trade. Inland transport throughout Sweden would have been better in the winter when the ground was firmer, whereas sea transport is better in summer when there was no ice and the storms were less frequent. The fact that these hubs needed to operate all year round would have helped replace seasonal markets from the Iron Age. They could accumulate the imports, if we call them that, and send out the exports in the summer and then focus on internal Swedish trade and distribution in the winter, as well as local production. So we get an all year round trade flow rather than seasonal trade. Yeah, because a lot of people think that in the Iron Age, a lot of the trade would have been done seasonally because of the reasons we just mentioned. And the weather and geography itself would lead the people actually doing the traveling to seek out sites that were safe, always active and favorable for whatever reasons they were politically accessible or had good local production sites nearby. And this meant that, as most people would naturally do, they would keep going back to the same places. So once you found one good place to go to, you would keep going back, and that would help that place to build up to become the nodal hub for that area. This, therefore, helped the network itself become even bigger and stronger based on the position of these larger hubs. Why would a trader from the east bother trying to find a new site when you don't know if that could guarantee the same number of customers, the safety of your journey, or the safety of yourself and your goods once you actually arrive? And that's actually led to some places aren't actually the fastest to get to. So when we look at Birka, the really famous Swedish trading place from this time, it's not right on the coast of Sweden. You've got to travel for another 30 or 40 miles inland before you reach it just because it was better for the other reasons rather than just instant access from the sea. Yeah, that's quite interesting. As ever, the long-distance traders aren't very representative of the day-to-day -day life of most people at the time. Most people in the Viking Age weren't off landing in America or trading in Constantinople. They were locals and... So were most traders. They're profoundly locally interested and based. They might travel once a year to buy foreign imports from places like Birka, but their main business would have been local to where they lived. In return, the long-distance traders would not have been very bothered about the local exchange stuff. You know, as long as they could travel for what they wanted at the major hubs. So, you know, different focus for different traders. But we'll talk much more about Viking Age trade later on. Yes. And so we'll move on to uh, another reason why Swedes and Vikings became famous abroad, apart from general raiding and fighting and the trade. And that was serving in the foreign armies of the time, mm -hmm. specifically the Eastern Roman Empire or the, the Byzantine Empire, as some people call it. We mentioned in the Iron Age episodes that some Swedes of the time would have travelled south to serve in the Roman legions. 
But the Viking Age Swedes are much more famous for their service in foreign armies when they became the bodyguard of the Eastern Roman emperors. Yeah, we are talking, of course, about the Varangian Guard. Swedes were known in the Roman Empire as the Rus, because, as we said earlier, Swedes and Scandinavians had settled in areas like Crimea, Ukraine, and parts of modern-day Russia. Those people got their own name, because they weren't calling themselves Swedish. Other people called them the Rus. And then those were the people who became the first members of the Varangian Guard. And, of course, loads of Swedes would have gone directly there from Sweden as well, once they found out that this was a thing. So who were the Varangian Guard? So they were in Byzantine service from the early 870s-ish as sort of ragtag mercenaries and general warriors. But the actual Varangian Guard was first formally founded under Emperor Basil II in 988 because Basil had a big distrust of the native guards that were being provided by the normal Roman legions. The loyalty of these men often shifted with each passing imperial dynasty or the rising fortunes of various family members, usually with fatal consequences for the emperor himself. And much like the Praetorian Guard that you may have heard of in the earlier Roman periods, they were a tricky bunch to deal with because of these changing loyalties and possibility to be bribed. But the proven personal loyalty of the Rangians, due to many things such as the oaths that we all get talking about, how they would make blood oaths and swear on various people's lives, they were much more personally loyal rather than institutionally loyal. And they would, some of them would have even served in the Roman military as well. And so this all led the emperors to come and think, hey, wait a second, we've got these really loyal guys. But a lot of them are just dying on the battlefield. How about I keep them as my own bodyguard? And that's what they did. And later on, they, they also, because they were still so great at fighting in battles, they sort of became shock troops or stormtroopers or special forces for the Byzantine Empire. In a lot of battles that they're just about to lose, the emperor says, fine, release the Varangians, and they would go in and sort of save the day. So they were mainly made up of Scandinavians, Swedes, and the Rus in the first hundred-odd years. But after the Norman conquest of England in 1066... The guard seems to become a lot more Anglo-Saxon as these proven warriors from England were kicked out of their homeland and had to find somewhere to serve. And they'd all heard stories of the Varangian guards so they thought they would try their own then. Mm. And so another 50-odd years later, by the end of the Viking period, the Varangian guard was largely recruited from these Anglo-Saxons. There was sort of this golden age for 100, 150 odd years where the Varangian Guard were almost entirely Scandinavian and mostly, apart from a few high profile exceptions, uh, more likely to be Swedish than Norwegian or Danish. Oh, that's very cool. We had an impact uh, so far from our native lands. They seem like a very fighty bunch, lots of fighting. Some of the units of the Varangian Guard grew to large size and certain Viking leaders of the Rus, especially from places like Kiev, they even intervened in Byzantine politics a great deal. Yeah, it it becomes a massively interesting period. And to be honest, we aren't really sure how we're going to cover these Swedes and the Rus because they were Swedish in origin. But if we're going to cover everyone of Swedish origin, especially once we reach the modern day, we might as well start a History of Minnesota podcast (laughs) or other Northern American states in the 20th century because everyone there is Swedish as well. And as much as I love Minnesota, I don't think I really want to do a History of Minnesota podcast. So there has to be a, a point where we stop talking about these people in great detail. Yeah. We'll obviously touch on the gradual developments and major events, but we won't be doing a step-by-step account of the Varangian Guard. If you do want stuff like that and really in detail about how the Varangian Guard interacted with Byzantine politics and people like these rulers in Kiev got involved, look at Robin Pearson's History of Byzantium podcast. That's probably the most in-depth podcast for this sort of thing and is sort of the spiritual successor to Mike Duncan's History of Rome. So do look at that for much more detail of Varangian fun. 
I also, you mentioned an important point here, not just about uh, the Varangian Guard, but a point of when does something stop being Swedish history? It might have had its roots in Sweden, as with the Varangian Guard and the Rus, but eventually it develops into a entity of its own. So yes, the, the Rus largely had their origin in Sweden, and the first Rus would have come from Sweden, but eventually it becomes its own thing. They become Rus, uh, just like the Swedes that arrived in Minnesota, northern US in the late 19th, early 20th century. Yes, they were Swedish, and the first and second generation might have identified very much as, as Swedish, but eventually that becomes just another part of, of America. So eventually we have to let things go in Swedish history, I think. Yeah, and it would be the same if you're doing a History of Britain podcast. After the American Revolution, the history of Britain is not the history of America, even though until almost the Declaration of Independence, you know, they would have been British subjects and, you know, there's a whole rabbit hole in itself. But yeah, the British history stops in North America once America becomes independent because they're their own country now. So it's the same thing. But obviously there's still relations between the two people and that's why we'll keep looking at the Varangian Guard. I think that's a general background to the Viking Age and what they would have been doing on a macro level. But before we start the chronological narrative next week and as we go looking at more micro level stuff, sort of day-to-day life and things, I know that Orsa is very keen to do some myth I am, uh, because I think there are general conceptions of the Vikings that have penetrated very deep into our general understanding and image of them, and I just wanted to crush them as early as possible because these conceptions are false. Some of these myths are things that were 100% fabricated from the very beginning, but over time became to be seen as true for whatever reason. And some are things that historians have argued about at one point because of the ideas of the time that they lived in, and they have now been proven wrong almost entirely. Yeah. So let's start at these three top myths. I think one of them we've briefly touched on already, but there's three in general that you'd like to talk about. Yes. Firstly, forget about the horn helmets. They never wore horn helmets, okay? It's very... Okay, calm down. <laughs> I, I hate the horn helmets. It's such a deeply rooted idea of the Vikings, and it's so wrong. I mean, they probably wore some kind of helmets in battle to protect their heads, but they didn't have horns. You know, horn helmets, we've all seen them in paintings and cartoons of Vikings, but... They make zero practical sense. They look cool, though. They they look really cool, but they make why have a big horn that someone can just grab you or you can they, get stuck somewhere? Because they look cool. But how would they have it fixed? It's just no. But this has become such a popularized image of the Vikings that it's absolutely no fault of your own if you start to think these things because it's become so ingrained in our culture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, images like that pop up in history books and all kinds of quite verified texts. But we actually have German composer Richard Wagner to blame for this, or at least his costume designer, Karl Emil Doppler, because uh, when Wagner's opera, uh, Der Ring des Nibelungen, or The Ring of the Nibelungen, premiered in 1869, Doppler designed helmets for the Viking characters in the opera that had horns on them, and supposedly just because it looked cool. And then that image stuck. Now, in fact, Wagner's opera was very timely. In the 19th century, there was a bit of a Viking craze. Anna Lihammer and Ted Hasleboom writes about this in the Swedish history magazine Populär Historia. For those of you who read in Swedish, by the way, definitely try and get a hold of that. It's a, it's a great article and in general, it's a great magazine. So Lihammer and Hasleboom argue that after Sweden had lost several wars and 
there had been political turmoil in the 18th and early 19th century, people, and especially men, looked to the past to find something you know, glorious to hark back to. And the Vikings helped a nation to find like a new cool identity. Yeah, we may suck now, but back then we were really cool. Yeah. Look at the horn helmets we had. So this Viking craze uh, spread to include other nations around the Baltics, and uh, Wagner, writing his opera, was right in that zeitgeist. And maybe when we get to the 18th and 19th century, we uh, could do a whole episode on how they used history to create new identities for political and cultural reasons. But for now, it's just safe to say that the idea of the Vikings wearing horn helmets was entirely fabricated in the 19th century, and they never wore horn helmets for real. Do you want to cover the second myth, maybe, Chris? It's another one, quite simply, is add the women into the story, because unlike with the horned helmet, this is more of a case that the historians themselves used to ignore the women and only focus on the men, which is, you know, pretty standard for old-timey people, because that's what their society cared about at the time, and that's what they did their history work on as well. So when you look at some of the older historians write about the Vikings, it's like, how did they even have kids? Because where were the women? Um, this is obviously wrong, because A, they would have died out if there were no women. And secondly, those historians knowingly, deliberately avoided talking about women or they talked about evidence that was definitely of women to make it look like it was about men. So in the case of the Viking grave in the trading town of Birka, this grave was excavated in the 1800s and they found loads of weapons and skeletons of two horses buried with the body so they just assumed well obviously it's a really cool powerful man look at all the stuff he's got and it wasn't until three years ago actually so in 2017 they actually analyzed the bones themselves and it became clear that it was a woman mm. and there are still historians and archaeologists who want to say no that's wrong it was clearly a, a man because it had a sword with it and the women wouldn't or other reasons like that. And we talked about this in one of our first proper case studies about the Bekerskutskrinam. And it's a similar idea here. It's an example of how we're stuck seeing history through our own sort of ideas of gender and what we want to believe ourselves. Today, this is certainly being rectified to a certain extent. And there are a great many books about women in the Viking Age, one that we are super excited to have recently got and just started reading from the Icelandic historian Johanna Katrín Friedrichsdóttir. Uh, she's just released a book called Valkyrie, the Women of the Viking World. And Dr. Friedrichsdóttir has done a lot of amazing work on the women of the Viking Age, building on some of the stuff that people like Judith Jesch has done before previously. She's done a book on uh, women in the Viking Age. And Dr. Friedrichsdóttir works at the National Library of Norway, so she's obviously got loads of uh, sources to look at but she's also previously taught at Yale and had a research post at Harvard so if there's someone who knows what they're talking about it's definitely her. The last myth I wanted to bust is about violence so we talked a bit about this already so we won't spend as, as much time on it but just forget about them all being violent all of the time. The image we have of the Viking was again largely created in the 18th and 19th century it is this idea of a warrior, a man with rage and just hacking away with his battle axe in all directions. I mean, don't get me wrong, Vikings were definitely violent and Viking battles were violent, like all battles were. They weren't violent all of the time. Uh, they were violent when they went on raids and fought battles. And this is probably why they are remembered as violent. Because it was when they were violent that they were noticeable to others. The world didn't know, and there were no records made of, you know, Leif the Viking when he was just hanging out at home, tending to his fields and playing with his kids. You know, it was only when Leif went and raided a monastery in Britain that anyone noticed him and wrote about him. And then what he did was violent and he carried arms. And since that's the only record we have of Leif and his mates, that they were violent, then 
Leif and all other Vikings have been remembered as violent. Now, I'm definitely not condoning violence. I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be on the receiving end of a Viking raid. I mean, all I'm saying is that not all Vikings were violent and they weren't violent all of the time. Yeah, because they were tradesmen and farmers and sons and going back to the bit where we're talking about the start, about the actual definition of the mm. word, meaning Vikinger was the word for the warrior and a Viking was the word for a military sea expedition. Mm. So these people, yeah, just because they're around in the Viking age doesn't mean they were beating people up abroad all the time. So that's the three myths that we've been talking about. We can put them aside and we can sort of start looking forward to next week. Yeah, definitely. Now that we've kicked off the Viking Age, the era when Swedes started to make themselves known abroad. We haven't decided how many episodes we'll do about the Vikings yet. We thought we'd make a start and see how we felt. Uh, we'll take it as it comes as we continue with our research, really. Some episodes might be longer and deal with a longer period of time, and then we might do some shorter episodes about a specific fact or aspect of this time. But overall, we'll try and cover it in a sort of a consistent fashion in the sense that we'll try and start episodes each week with events that were going on in Sweden or with Swedes abroad at the start of the episode and then spend the second half or the second part of an episode looking at a specific theme or factor. So next week, we'll start talking about when uh, the first few Vikings in general started going abroad to Britain and how a Christian monk came to Sweden and what he was doing in the early 800s, but also look about daily life in the Viking Age and general themes and what we can learn from the period about the daily life of the Vikings. Yeah. So. That's a lot. That's very exciting and a lot to look forward to for next time. Definitely. Um, so until next time, we've just got time to thank Jerry again for reading out the quote. Uh, uh, do head over to his podcast, Presidencies Podcast, and check that out. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you like us, please give us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. This helps us get noticed and we read them out in the show. Yeah, like we did last time. And we also have email and all of that sort of thing. So yeah, get in touch or just continue enjoying and listening. And for now, we'll see you next week. Yeah, bye-bye. Hey, doll.